Thank you, Pastor Carter, and good morning, everyone. It's good to be in the Lord's house, isn't it? Amen. It's a beautiful day in the Ozarks, as Pastor Wanamaker used to say, and uh, we're glad to be inside out of the heat today. However, before first service, uh, I received a text message from Pastor Jim and Sandy, and they asked that I give you their love and greetings. So formally, I will do that both to you that are here live in our service and to those of you that have joined us online today as well. And then, would you believe it, I just got a second text from some other people, and this one says, praying for your message today, Grandpa. Love you and watching from Kansas City. That's an awesome thrill, and I just doubled the cost of your birthday gifts this year. <laughs> Every Sunday morning before church starts, our pastor, pastoral team, the ones of us that are here in town, we gather together in a secluded place to spend some time uh, in prayer. And uh, this morning we were in the chapel, and uh, after praying together for a while, we were working on getting our bearings back together with so many out for general counsel and, you know, trying to get caught up on the week and get everybody's feet back on the ground. One of the pastors said, uh, who had been absent a couple of three Sundays, said, well, has Pastor Jim concluded, what was it he was, to, what, it was about truth. Somebody said, yes, he, uh, that was called Case for Truth. Uh, and it's concluded, and somebody across the room said, yep, we're through with truth. <laughs> and I had to think about that for a minute. That either gives me a great deal of liberty this morning, and Pastor Josh next Sunday, or some trepidation. And I got to thinking, well, maybe these folks out here, this is the first Sunday after the case for truth is concluded. So I thought, I'm going to run back to my office. And I did. I dashed in the back door of my office and grabbed the biggest Bible I could find to try to convince all of you that I am going to be rooted and grounded in truth as much as I can this morning. And would you know, I get in here and discover that it's a French Bible. Donc c'est votre problème, pas de moi, je vais prêcher en français, et si vous pouvez pas comprendre, that's your problem, not mine. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach in French, and if it doesn't work for you, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> it is a joy and a, an honor to stand here and share the Word of God on any given occasion, and uh, I don't take it lightly. You know, uh, we all tend to gather uh, across the path of life, uh, whether we're young, whether we're middle-aged, or whether we're older, seems to me that somebody is always speaking words of wisdom, words of counsel and advice into our hearts, and sometimes those things just never go away. They're just stuck there forever. I can remember things that were told to me at a very, very young age. And in the early years of my ministry as, as a preacher, pastor, teacher, missionary, uh, somebody said to me, whenever you're given an opportunity to proclaim the Word of God, preach to the people in the room. Preach to the people in the room. Now, that wasn't saying whether or not there's three or four or 300. That wasn't saying even if the crowd is small. That was saying don't preach to those who aren't with you. 
preached to the people in the room. And uh, I just happen to know that that manifests itself as a truth in my life over and over again. And many times it manifests itself by who the Lord gathers in the room where the preaching or the teaching is going forward. That's to say to you that I don't believe any of us are in God's house this morning by accident. I believe he had purposes for us to be here, and it's not my role to rant and rave about something that I can't control from people out there or somebody that I'm angry at out there or somebody that I especially like out there other than my grandchildren. That's okay. Uh, my job is to preach the word to those that are in the room, including those that are in our virtual room today whom we welcome to worship with us. So we're preaching to the room today, and I believe that the Lord and I pray that God will use these words and these thoughts to speak to your heart. Second Chronicles chapter 15 and verse 7, uh, in all uh, transparency, I'm just going to use as an opening point of focus for us this morning specifically on two words out of this short passage of Scripture, the words take courage. The context of this little verse surrounds one of the kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. He was called a good and a godly king. His name was Asa. Well, at one point, a prophetic word came to him, seemingly just simply as a word of assurance. This word from the Lord came to him, said that as long as you as king are faithful to God, God will be faithful to you. That's an awful, awfully encouraging message for us to hear, isn't it not? You just be faithful to me, God says, and I will be faithful to you. So in response to all the turmoil in the world around King Asa, uh, he was encouraged by that word of prophecy that he should take courage, do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. But I must also tell you the work, the, the, the verse that follows, verse 8 of that same uh, passage of Scripture is of equal importance, I think, because it confirms Asa's response to that word from God. God said to uh, King Asa, take courage, do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. And in verse 8, we read that about Asa's response, that when Asa heard these words, he took courage. God says, take courage, and the testimony of history is Asa took courage. That's an awesome combination and one we pray for this morning. Our hope is that there will be those hearing God's word today and being motivated to take courage will actually do just that. So this morning, I want us to give these moments that we have together to some consideration of guess what? Courage. We're going to talk about courage. I've been in this church long enough to know that it is filled with people who have lived a lifetime uh, very courageously. I've also seen some of the most courageous people that I know hit particular moments or decision-making moments or situations in their life when those courageous people became discouraged and needed to be 
encouraged. And you may be here in that situation today. Perhaps God wants to speak to your heart uh, as well this morning. Courage is something that we learn about pretty early in our life, and we find out that the absence of it can be pretty devastating, uh, creating all kinds of potential situations. It may even have us being referred to as scaredy cat on the playground when courage is not there, and none of us like that. We'd rather be seen as a brave and strong person, would we not? Courage can be also a very broad subject. There is physical courage as well as moral courage, social courage as well as political courage. There is courage to innovate, courage to dream, and courage to do new things. There is courage to follow, but at the same time, there is courage to lead. I was listening across the house this morning, very early in the morning, before daylight, in fact, to the words of Dr. Charles Stanley on television, and I heard him, unprovoked by me, just of his own volition, he says, it takes courage to wait. And so I quickly added that to my list this morning. Courage comes in many forms with many consequences, if absent, and at the same time, great impact when it is present. Courage is not altogether easy to define. It is so broad and has so many applications. Perhaps it would be easier for us this morning if we tried to describe it by an example. So today, for these next few minutes, I'd like for us to visit a classic story from the Old Testament and explore for a few moments, a tremendous lesson in courage. I love these Old Testament stories. I still have clear memories of the voices and faces of the men and women who, through my younger years in life, repeated and illustrated and demonstrated and dramatized all these uh, Old Testament Bible stories so full of teaching material and truths to be absorbed. They are a huge part, in fact, of my personal uh, spiritual heritage. They are a source uh, of lots of the early teaching that I received as a believer, and I would have to be honest and say that they are actually still foundational in some ways to this day, to my daily walk with God. So, alert, so first, let's find the story. The biblical account of these events can be found in the first seven chapters of the book of Esther. Now, obviously, we're not going to spend time this morning reading seven chapters from God's Word. I would encourage you to do it. It's one of the most fantastic stories. It has almost every element of literature you would want to read in it. So if you've got a little time, read Esther chapter 1 through 7. It's an incredibly uh, important story. It's about being uh, in the right place at the right time and making the right decision to take courage and do the right thing. I call that uh, uh, confluence of all of these different things, being in the right place at the right time and having the courage to make the right decision. I call that a situational opportunity. 
good or bad, our situation at a given point or moment in life can be a moment to take courage and seize the moment, seize the opportunity, and see something awesome or wonderful or important transpire in our lives. Now, this is a hugely complex story. It is worth reading, but briefly this morning, I'm going to try to give you just the essentials. Turn your imaginations on, let the pictures and images appear in your mind, and let's hear the story about uh, Esther in Esther chapter 1 through uh, chapter 1 through chapter 7. Uh, for today's story, we need to talk about the setting. And the setting of this story was way back in the very first Persian Empire, almost five centuries before Jesus. More specifically, it's focused around the palace in the capital city of Shushan or Susa. That was the capital of that first Persian Empire formed by Cyrus the Great, and it, in fact, replaced the former Babylonian Empire, which we read so much about in Scripture. The story takes place also after the captive Jews were allowed by Cyrus to return to their homeland uh, in Israel. Now that's the setting, the where and the when and circumstances. Now we need to talk about the characters. Here the characters are real people. God created real people that are known and recorded in history. They had real lives. They're not caricatures that some artist drew or some uh, qualified author made up out of his imagination. These are real people. There's only four or five of them. First would be King Xerxes. I have no clue why his mother named him Xerxes. He's the only person I ever met whose first name begins with the letter X. Xerxes he was the so-called king of kings of Persia of the time of this story taking place. Next was his queen, Vashti. She was Cyrus's queen, the queen of Persia, known throughout the kingdom for her exquisite, exquisite uh, beauty and stateliness in everything that she did. The third character would be a man by the name of Haman. He is next. He was a trusted advisor and military leader for King Xerxes. So respected was Haman by the king that he was named, according to the word of God, to the highest position in the kingdom. And consequently, everyone at the royal gate was ordered by the king to bow down in homage and honor to Haman. Yet in spite of all of that, when you're telling a story, every story needs a villain to one degree or another. And, and Haman is the story's antagonist. He's the troublemaker in this story, so let's just call him our villain. Then we need to meet Mordecai. I call him displaced person number one. Do you know there's about 80 million displaced persons in the world today? People who are outside of their homeland due to war or disaster or to captivity. Well, that's not a new phenomenon. Five centuries before Jesus, uh, Mordecai lived as a displaced 
misplaced person in the Persian uh, Empire. He was, in fact, a non-returning Jew. His grandfather had been part of the original deportation from Israel many years before, and Mordecai, Mordecai remained, as did many other Jews, when Cyrus opened the way for them to return to Palestine. Yet, even though he remained in Persia, he also remained faithful to his forefathers' religion, faithful to their devotion to Yahweh, and in the pattern then of other Bible characters with similar beliefs in other stories like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, Mordecai refused to follow the order to bow down to Haman. Now keep that situation in mind. Hold it over here as we go forward uh, in the story. The next character that we need to deal with is Esther. I call her displaced person number two because she also was Jewish, happened to be related to Mordecai. So when her parents died and left her orphaned, he provided, Mordecai provided family care for her and came to be viewed by her as just like a father. Additionally, the Bible finds it necessary to tell us in chapter 2 and verse 7 that she was also very, very beautiful. So there you are, the lineup in this story, so to speak. Xerxes the king, Vashti the queen, Haman the influential leader with a wicked streak in his heart, and Mordecai the elder Jew and beautiful Esther. So we have the setting and we have the characters, the players. Now what we need to complete this story is the plot. That's always of great interest to us. That would be the situations and actions of the story, especially surrounding that list of characters that we just went through. Well, actually, there are two main storylines here in this story, and they are both part of the eventual model of courage that emerges. I might add that there also are one or two subplots that are unfolding here as well, and they also play a part. The first storyline involves the king and the queen. In chapter 1, the book of Esther actually opens with an incredible word picture of this lavish royal extravaganza that's being thrown by Xerxes the king uh, to impress all the royals and the nobles that he could gather together for this great dinner and banquet. Verses 5, 6, and 7 in chapter 1 describe the opulence of the king's great banquet, and just those verses are worth the reading. So as a finale to his great spectacle, Xerxes sent word for his his queen, his beautiful queen Vashti, to come and appear in the banquet. So he could essentially show her off, uh, display her, so to speak, as his trophy wife. But guess what? Vashti refused to come. Now, you listen to that from today's perspective, 
Vashti's public refusal of the king. It's interesting in terms of our conversations today about gender equality and mutual respect and other social issues that we are talking about. Well, just bear in mind, this took place 2,500 years ago, and in the perspective of 2,500 years ago, everyone knew when Vashti refused the command of the king to come, everyone knew that this would not end well for someone and very few people doubted that that someone would be a Vashti. So sure enough, uh, ultimately, uh, after boiling in his own anger for a while, uh, Xerxes unceremoniously deposed Vashti and she was effectively banished from ever seeing him again. Well, soon thereafter, what did Xerxes do? He began a kingdom-wide search for a new king. It was a search that took several years that covered the entire kingdom to gather the most beautiful women for the process of choosing a replacement king, a queen, excuse me. Ultimately, uh, Esther was selected to be a candidate in that candidate pool. Mordecai insisted that when she went there to be a part of that candidate pool, that she not reveal to the personnel in the palace that she was indeed Jewish, but to keep that secret. And so Esther did just that. Well, long story short, Esther was indeed chosen by Xerxes, and so the Jews in Mordecai had a representative inside the royal family in the palace of Shushan. But there's also a matter of the other storyline that's beginning to percolate at the same time. It's about the brewing crisis involving Haman and Mordecai. It seems to get a lot deeper around Mordecai's refusal to bow in homage and honor to Haman. Everyone else seemed to find it easy or at least wise to obey everybody but Mordecai. Naturally, that raised the ire of proud Haman, and it ultimately provoked him to finagle the kingdom and the king in setting a trap. He tricked King Xerxes into signing a decree that would allow him to pursue a genocide campaign against the Jews throughout the kingdom, starting with Mordecai. So Mordecai is cast now as an enemy of Haman, but he was actually, rather secretly, a national hero. Palace records included an account of Mordecai having spoiled an assassination attempt against the king. He was continually standing at the palace gate in order to keep an eye and an ear on the welfare of Esther day by day. And standing at the palace gate, he overheard a plot being laid to assassinate King Xerxes. 
So what did he do? He went straight to Queen Esther and told her what was afoot. She went straight to King Xerxes and told him all about the plot, giving credit to her uncle Mordecai for having discovered the plot. The plot was destroyed. The danger facing uh, King Xerxes was lifted, all because uh, uh, Mordecai had taken the opportunity to report the assassination tip. That had, that had been lying dormant and forgotten uh, for the particular moment when all of this is beginning to transpire. But I must tell you one other thing. Haman knew nothing about that experience of Mordecai. Oh, it sounds like a mystery novel, doesn't it? Haman knew nothing about what Mordecai had done in favor of the king. So all of these pieces now in our story are about to come together. Haman had a decree issued against the Jews, placing all of them in a position of great risk, even death. If they were to be saved, they needed an advocate before the king. If not, Haman would certainly succeed and destroy every Jew remaining in the kingdom of Persia. Now's the time to remember right here uh, that against all probabilities, the Jewess Esther has amazingly, unexpectedly risen to the position of queen. If all boiled down to who would have the ear of the king. That's the final word. Who will capture the ear of the king? Will it be Haman or someone representing the Jews? And of course, Mordecai turned his position, his attention to Esther, viewing her intervention with the king as the only way of escape and survival. Well, he totally viewed her amazing rise to the throne of queen as being very providential and totally orchestrated by God for his purposes in putting her there in that position. And that brings us to our model of crisis, where we've been going, model of courage, rather, where we've been headed in all this story. Let me say just a few things about this model of courage. First, when Mordecai approached Esther about intervening before the king, she instantly knew and knew very well that with this king, Xerxes, there were no guarantees because of her position as queen. Queen or not, she could not be assured of anything. After all, he had deposed unceremoniously Queen Vashti for missing dinner. So whenever he approached uh, her, when Mordecai approached her, she instantly knew the risk. Secondly, King Xerxes had not summoned Esther to his uh, to to his to, to be in, in touch with him for over 30 days. She had heard nothing from him. She had not been summoned to the king's palace, nothing, as though they weren't even king and queen. And a tradition of the day in that kingdom, according to chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, tells us that anyone approaching the king without being formally invited to come into the king's presence would automatically being put to be put to death. Well, Esther had no invitation. There was one way 
out. There was one way through. The only escape route was if an uninvited person appeared trying to gain audience with the king, the king could see that person, recognize that person, and take the scepter, his authority of power, and extend it toward that individual. And that scepter of power actually became a last-minute invitation. Esther had no clue whether whether, uh, King Xerxes would extend that scepter or not. Was he mad at her? Had she displeased him? She had heard nothing from him in over 30 days. So it really was uh, somewhat a risk for her. If he did not extend the scepter, then death was the worst-case scenario. Uh, All the key indicators seem to be against this working at all. With death, the penalty of an uninvited approach, the, the, uh, the potential consequences to Esther were extreme. But if she could succeed, her success might prove to be the difference between the life and death of herself, Mordecai, and all the Jewish people. The challenge to take courage here can be boiled down to two phrases. The first one is addressed by Mordecai to Esther. He called her to reflect on her incredible situational opportunity, being in the right place at the right time and having the right opportunity to do something incredible. He looked to uh, Esther and this is what he said. Who knows, Esther? but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And the second phrase of importance is how Esther ultimately responded. Yes, she did calculate. Yes, she did think. Yes, she did ponder. Yes, she did hesitate. But ultimately, her response was, I will do it. And if I perish, I will perish. In other words, whatever it costs me, For the salvation of my people, I will put myself on the line and I will do it. Ultimately, this story concludes with Haman's plot being foiled, him being hung, uh, Mordecai and Queen Esther and all the Jews of the kingdom being delivered from the menace of his genocide, and also Mordecai's previous actions of saving the king from assassination came to light about that time. And as a result of that, the king took all the power and authority that had been in the hands of Haman, and who do you think he gave it to? He gave it to the holdover Jew, Mordecai, made him as powerful as Haman had ever thought of being. And again, all the Jews were saved, all because of Mordecai's call for Esther to take courage, and the Bible records showing that indeed Esther accepted the challenge and she took courage. Now, let's talk for a moment about applying this to our lives today. Our call to take courage today. If you want to take Mordecai's words to Esther and bring them forward to our generation and to our moment, He would simply say to us, don't ever think negatively, this could be your moment. 
This could be your very reason for being. This could be a situational opportunity that God has placed in front of you if you just have the courage to step forward and accept it. Let me say this to all of us today. We have a strong tendency in our day at times to uh, interpret all of our interruptive moments, our life-altering moments, our crisis moments, we have a tendency to always interpret them as just that, negative and bad. They need to be removed or avoided or at least fixed. Let me just say in response to that, that as followers of the Lord, people who find our hope in Him, there is value some moments when we face the crevasse of problems or the roadblock of opportunity in front of us. There is some value at times in learning to just go slow. But I'm reminded again of Dr. Charles Stanley's words this morning, it takes courage to wait or to go slow. Maybe we need to even ask God before we start complaining and before we go berserk uh, in hysteria, maybe we need to stop and just inquire of our God. God, what are you doing? I've asked God that a few times, have you? He didn't strike me dead either when I did it. God, what are you doing? Could you be doing something here that is of significance? If so, don't let me, let me miss it. Do you have a stake, a stake in what's going on around me in my life? It might amaze you to discover that there has sometimes been some orchestration of the Lord in some of those difficult moments of our lives to get us to the right place at the right time in the right moment to muster courage and do what God says do so his purposes can be fulfilled. You see, he may be giving us one of those, again, that I'll just call an Esther moment or our own situational opportunity. In fact, I stand before you talking to you this morning persuaded that in this room or in the virtual room online that either, either now or recently or soon, some of us will stand in an Esther moment of some description with decisions to make, actions to take, something to end or something to begin or something to change. It may not be easy. It may not be pleasant. We may see no good coming out of it, but it is an Esther moment, and we desperately need to take courage in order to respond to it properly. Uh, that may bring significant results or consequences to just you or maybe just to your family or maybe to many more. Your Esther moment may call you to seize the opportunity, to take a chance, to risk it, to go for it, to step up, to make the call, to make the decision. Your Esther moment may call on you to follow your heart, even if that means to say no to something incredibly positive. Your Esther moment, moment may be to decide to do the right thing or do the courageous thing or do the godly thing. Sometimes in this situation, a temptation comes when we come to our Esther moment. 
we may have a tendency to minimize our own capacity and say, God, why do you need me? I'm not able. I'm not smart enough. I'm not trained enough. I'm not good enough. Or it may cause us to think only of ourselves. I'm not risking myself like that. I think I'll wait for a more high-profile day to where my good deeds can be seen more visibly and publicly. Or perhaps your personal Esther moment is about taking courage in your personal life to say no to long-enduring bullying or abuse behind the closed doors of that place you call home. Maybe your Esther moment will call you to take moral courage enough to abandon dishonesty or something that you know is unfair. Maybe your Esther moment will be about aborting the decision that you are right in the middle of making right now or the path on which you've taken the very first steps toward following. Maybe your Esther moment will be to face change. Face it rather than fight it. Maybe it will be to just say yes. Maybe it will be to take courage to just stay the course when everybody around you is telling you it's time to change. Sometimes we tend to nail-bite over Esther moments like this or we can just pretend they don't exist, or we can make a plethora of excuses, or we can delay, or we can look for an easy and a safe way out. Let me just offer this. If you are facing an Esther moment of decision in your life, whatever it may be about, or if one is in front of you, it's true, it, it's a vulnerable time, it's a scary time, it's a precarious time. The psalmist David, in a crisis season of his own life, with Saul chasing him in order to kill him, he penned these words for all of us in Psalm 31, 24. What did he say? Simple. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all of you who wait for the Lord. I'm going to ask our worship team if you'll come at this point. This encouragement from Psalm 31, 24 is directed specifically, isn't it, to all those who find their hope in the Lord or who wait on the Lord. If you do believe Him and if you do walk with Him and if you do live for Him and if indeed you do find your hope in Him, Draw up your confidence. Take courage. Be encouraged, not discouraged. And then just be strong. Let your heart take courage, for you are among those who wait upon the Lord. And this very morning, have we not sung about how faithful he is and how good he is and about how quick he is to come to our side and to deliver us and stand with us and help, and help us in every situation? 
Esther had enough courage to say, I'll do it, and if I perish, I'll perish. That is abandonment into the hand of the one whom she was waiting for, the Lord her God. I can only encourage you in that Esther moment that will come your way sooner or later, and they usually are many in the course of life. I can only encourage you, encourage you to take courage and respond in faith. Would you bow your heads with me for just a moment?